Hello, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Cigna. She's a gynecologist and a specialist in female sexual health. And I'm so excited to have her here because she is launching a brand new fellowship for gynecologists so that they can become specialists in female sexual health. And I wanted to talk to her about that today. So welcome, Dr. Cigna. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Like we were saying just a second ago, it's so good to talk with you and get the powwow over this. Exactly. And she's at George Washington University. And we also at University Hospitals in Cleveland are starting a sex med fellowship also. So we are really excited to kind of be pioneering this together in academic medicine, and especially in gynecology, because it doesn't exist yet. This is a, this is a whole new thing. So I wanted to have Dr. Cigna um, kind of talk us through what female sexual medicine is, and you know what what the fellowship is going to be training people to do. So um, I know that a lot of people in the sex med sphere have a similar story. You know, you stumbled upon sexual medicine somehow, and you know that may have been through a provider that specialized in something like orgasm dysfunction, or they did a lot of pain research or treatment in their clinics. And you realized how little training you had as a gynecologist Uh in your training. And I think that that story just, you hear it over and over again when you talk to people who start getting involved in some of the bigger organizations that provide sort of post-training education about sexual health. The issue is it's not integrated into our routine training. And so if you're just stumbling upon it, so many people are not getting that training. And I had to struggle my way through figuring out how do I get this really comprehensive training so I can do some of the most complex procedures, right? Right. Things like vestibulectomies, injections, things that, you know, you just can't find the training anywhere else unless you find an apprenticeship essentially where you can get sort of long-term mentorship. So creating the fellowship was my dream to really do the ultimate pay it forward and be able to train other people in a way that's very set out, very transparently, and really respectful to them as learners and allowing them to have the time and autonomy to really learn and and look into things that they're interested in learning about. Yeah, it's a good point. You and I both did gynecology residency, obstetrics and gynecology at different places. What was your experience in your residency training? Um, did, Did you have anyone that was kind of sex med- um, specialized or, or vulvar specialized or someone that kind of was, you know, flying that flag during your training or where was it that you came upon the specialty? My first exposure to someone who showed interest was actually with Jill Kraft, who's a oh, mutual, mutual yeah. friend and colleague. She was the clerkship director of the medical student rotation at the time. Okay. And I presented something on sex and pregnancy, like is sex safe during pregnancy? Just out of curiosity, I wanted to know for myself also and presented this as part of our little clerkship requirement. Um, Clerkship is when the students go through different rotations and kind of learn about different specialties. And she was like, oh, I I love this topic. We should totally talk about this. And so I got to hear a little bit more about what she did. And then through a friend found out about Dr. Andrew Goldstein is, you know, one of the world leaders in lichen sclerosis and vulvar diseases and did an elective with him during my fourth year of medical school where I was totally immersed 
in everything sexual medicine. And that was really kind of the launching point for realizing there was this whole world that I had no idea about up until that point. And he really provided a lot of mentorship in figuring out how I was going to incorporate this into my practice going forward. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. It seems like there are these people kind of few and far between scattered out around the world, not even just in the US, who have become specialists in their own right. And if you're so lucky to get training with them, then you see the need of having more people who can provide that sort of care for women. Yeah, I was really lucky to have somebody who is dedicated to vulvar dermatoses and sexual issues for women during my residency. And she started a, a program also with a psychologist, Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, who's a sex therapist for all intents and purposes. And they really instilled in us as residents how important this was. But at the same time, like you said, like it was a rotation <laughs> when we could spend some time in clinic with, with that gynecologist, but it was so brief. And it wasn't something that we had repeated over and over again, like labor and delivery or like oncology or anything else. We need to be providing opportunities for more more gynecologists to get this training. And I think we need that time, right? Like you can't get it all from an elective. I'm sure so much of what you've learned has been during practice. Oh, 100%. And it's like any other part of residency in OBGYN where you have a champion for each kind of sub-interest of OBGYN, right? We have a champion of urogynecology, so for prolapse Mm -hmm. surgery. You have a champion of menopause, right? There might be somebody who's really good at complex menopause. Mm -hmm. You have a champion of minimally invasive surgery, a champion of oncology, a champion of high-risk pregnancy But if we don't have these kind of set champions of sex med in OBGYN departments, it's just not something that's standard. But that doesn't mean that's okay, right? Like this should be bread and butter for gynecologists. We should all know how to do this. Yeah, I agree. So what kind of patients do you see as a sex med gynecologist? Oh, gosh. So every day is different. And my learners and I always talk about the flavor of the day. So every mm-hmm. day, there's always seems to be a theme. Patterns. You know, like <laughs> one day, we'll see a lot of sexual pain or mm-hmm. pelvic pain. And that can be pain with orgasm, pain with penetration. That can be pain with peeing. That can be yes. so many different reasons why someone might be triggered to have pain. It could be pain with sitting. Yeah. But genital pelvic pain is one of the most common things that we see. I would say probably 80 plus percent of our patients have some element of pain in their presentation. Yeah, that's what's bringing them in. It's just unbearable. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, just constant and really debilitating yeah. and affects their lives. And it's really it's really rewarding to be able to help people kind of reclaim a lot of their normal functions, like yeah. being able to pee without pain. Like that's huge. Being able to have sex without pain, put a tampon in, like these things are really life-changing for people. I recently had a patient send me a photo of the dolphins that she got to see in New Zealand because she was able to now place a tampon and not have pain. Things like that. That's really, it's really rewarding. And and you see Mm -hmm. that you're really making a difference in people's quality of life. We also see a large number of vulvar dermatoses, mainly like in sclerosis, but we do see others. And then we see quite a bit of desire, orgasm, and arousal dysfunction. And it's usually wrapped up in pain, but sometimes it's separate. Right. So we, you know, each individual, we just approach them 
you know, how they come to us and what things we can offer them in the spectrum nice. of what's going on. One of the things that was very, you know, kind of uh, important for me or, or kind of surprising to me is once I started offering appointments or clinics for people with sexual issues, I started to realize how many disorders there were that I didn't know about and even um, signs and symptoms and the way things look that I didn't know to look for. And one of my colleagues and friends, Jean Marino, she always says, people don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and so, so I think so, so appropriate for female sexual medicine because sure, you might not think it's important because you don't know anything about it. But once you start learning all of the facets of it and all of the the different disorders that can actually occur, then you'll start seeing it everywhere. Exactly. And asking your patients about it, right? Like I'm sure you get a lot of referrals from people um, just because now you exist and that you have an office where they can come. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we get a ton of referrals from the community and from within our, we have a big multidisciplinary practice as part of the university and we get lots of referrals from the internal medicine department, cancer center, colorectal, you know, yes. all these different places where there's so much overlap. And really, you know, I have a student recently who was rotating with us just for her routine um, mm -hmm. OBGYN rotation. She's like, I'm deciding between OB and ortho and I don't know which one I should choose. And I was like, well, I will tell you, we would love to have more orthopedic surgeons yeah. who are knowledgeable about the effects of orthopedic issues on sexual health. Because I know I partner very closely with orthopedic folks in our mm -hmm. community to get mm -hmm. people care when it's a hip-related issue, for example. For sure. um, yeah, I really enjoy this work and I, I can't wait to see where the field goes. I feel like the world is really our oyster right now. Any improvement will be a huge improvement for everybody. That's true. And you mentioned cancer survivorship. That's another big part of our fellowship. I see a lot of a lot of women who are going through cancer treatments or have already finished them, but have had terrible radiation damage to their vaginas, their vulvas, and you know, just the pelvic floor. People who've had kind of a shortening of their vagina and need complex reconstruction. And so that's one of the things that's really exciting for me is to be able to offer them reconstructive surgery when they need it and to offer them the surgical side, because as a gynecologist, you've got those skills. And so to be able to put that in, into use, I think in a lot of places that might be done by a plastic surgeon, but a plastic surgeon is not necessarily seeing women for sexual function follow-up. So what a nice way to couple things together if you could do both. And then, of course, for our transgender population, you guys are also including care for gender affirmation, right? Hi, friends. I'm here to remind you to subscribe and like to the podcast. I love doing this. I love bringing people on, but I need to know if you're actually listening to me. I get no feedback out here, so I know things are going out. And then suddenly I'll talk to someone and they say, oh yeah, I love your podcast. It's awesome. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you were listening. So if you want to stay in the know, you want to get notified when new episodes come back, please, please, please subscribe and like go into your podcast and you just go in the upper right corner. You press the plus sign and it turns to a check mark and then you're subscribing. And then of course you can like it five stars, of course, right? If you can, please. And um, if you use Spotify, if you use Zencaster, whatever you use, it's fine. Just please subscribe and like, thank you. Yes, absolutely. So for pretty much all genders in terms of the gender diverse spectrum we care for. And we also offer prenatal care to those patients. So we really pride yes. ourselves in being able to see people across the spectrum of their life and yeah. what their goals are. 
That's huge. So one common misperception I see about female sexual medicine is some um, kind of like the med spa treatments that are out there or the vaginal rejuvenation or all of the lasers and lights <laughs> that can be that can be maybe useful for a sexual function. The jury's still out, the research is still out for a lot of them. Do you yeah. find that coming into play as well when people are trying to understand what you do? It's very hard sometimes when patients come in having read about or heard about a particular treatment, like vaginal rejuvenation, for example, this is going to help me. But unfortunately, it can actually cause more problems than good. And to be clear, vaginal rejuvenation is not actually a procedure. There's no standard procedure or set of treatments or regimen that equates to vaginal rejuvenation. And so, you know, to all those listening be very cautious when someone's offering that to you because it's not endorsed by any major association. And there are lots of things that we do in female sexual medicine that is off the beaten path a little bit in terms of sure. you know on-label and off-label drug dosing, for example. Right. I know that we're not quite to the FDA-approved level that we would love to be that mm -hmm. we have some options for other diseases, but we do really need to be careful about some of these promises for rejuvenating things when there's yeah. not really a good definition behind that. There are other types of injections that are not FDA approved that we have to be careful about and just really think clearly about what is the evidence? Is it yeah. going to help this person with the problem they have based on what it caused it, right? Yeah. Because we have to think exactly. about the cause before we just go throwing treatments in. Exactly. And I think that's why I'm so excited about your fellowship and about our institution's fellowship, because it's so important to have academic medicine in these emerging fields. And yeah. for listeners out there, what is academic medicine? It's having people who are teaching others and who are doing research. And so we really do try to look at the evidence in an objective way. We're not benefiting from the treatments that we give you, right? We're salary-based. <laughs> so right. we're going to do the treatment that we think is right, and that's going to be based on evidence. And if you find in the academic centers, they're not offering lights and lasers <laughs> for your vagina, that's probably because <laughs> there's not a lot of evidence for them, right? right. Otherwise, we want to offer what's best for women too um, and have all options available. So if the research changes and if it comes out there to show that some of these things are good, I will be the first person to try to get that exactly. incorporated into our practice. Yeah, and we do have to be a little more conservative with our approach in academics because you know we are teaching learners and we want to make sure they're teaching them to practice safe medicine when they go out into the world, their jobs. And I think especially Especially with lights and lasers, to use that coined term, <laughs> you know, there are definitely patients that I say, you know, I think you could really potentially benefit from this. And yeah. I'll send them to a, a colleague who does offer that in the community. Yeah. But, you know, it's very individualized. I'm mm -hmm. not just, you know, doing laser on every patient because it exactly. may not be the right thing for everybody. Exactly. So for providers out there, for people who want to get training, what do you suggest for them? Would you we think they should do to kind of get into this field? So I like to talk about the different layers of education and how we really need to start promoting engagement for all mm -hmm. these different levels. So the first layer is medical school, right? That's the first kind of big entry into kind of learning about the medical system. And mm -hmm. medical students who are interested in sexual health, there are a number of ways to get involved. And one that I would throw out there is SMRT, which is the Sexual Medicine Research Team. 
And they, led by Rachel Rubin, have come up with so many amazing projects that have been published using evidence. They've Mm -hmm. done surveys. They create webinars. They do so much to help get medical students involved. And this is pretty much medical student-led, which is really amazing. So if you're a student, definitely look them up because it's a great way to kind of dip your toes in and see what's going on. Another place students can get involved is in ISWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Really focused on people with vulvas and vaginas. So it is very inclusive of all genders, mm-hmm. aside from cis men. Sorry. <laughs> they got their own association. They're yeah, good. Exactly. Um, but everybody else is welcome. <laughs> and really focuses on evidence based research development, education, and advocacy for women's sexual health and for people with vulvas and vaginas. So it's that is a crucial organization. It's one that I'm very involved in. You are also very involved in. So we're a little biased. I'll totally, totally, totally recognize that, but it is a great place to start. They have courses, they have webinars. For students, it's very inexpensive to get membership and to go to the courses and to the annual meeting. And you come and you meet like the celebrities of sex medicine, which is so fun. I I really love going because I feel like it's like the red carpet of sex providers, which is so fun. And then that's true of the resident level. So once you get up to residency, ISWISH is another great place. Submit an abstract, right? Find a mentor in your institution or reach out to one of us. Like you don't Mm -hmm. have someone in the institution to write an abstract with. Right. Get an abstract in so that you can go. Many residencies require, you know, residents to do something like that to be able to attend a conference. And then once you're done with residency, please look up our fellowships because we're going to be booming. Our first fellow, Dr. Katie Dumas, is from Hopkins, and she is just killing it, like just doing the most amazing work right now and pushing me also to push boundaries, which is great. I mean, that's why I love being in a teaching institution is because I'm always challenged by my learners to do better, to learn more, to really push the boundary when it comes to individualizing care and pushing the research forward as well. I love that. And there is so much research to be done because as many of you out there know that women have not even been included in research (laughs) for a long time, and especially sexual research. There's so much out there that's needed to be done. So what about for patients? If they're looking for a female sex med provider, or they're having an issue, or they want to ask someone more about it, where should they go? So patients are our most important advocates because many of them have to advocate for themselves. So for those of you who are patients, I recommend you go to the ISWISH website. So again, that's the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and look at the provider directory. It's a great first step for looking for people who have some knowledge from ISWISH, from conferences, courses, or other mentorship that can help you get access to the right care. Another place you can go, those with pudendal neuralgia symptoms, Pudendal Hope is a really great website with recommendations for who to see. And if you're just looking for a pelvic floor physical therapist, like you know your problem because you've read When Sex Hurts, right? Mm-hmm. That amazing book by Jill Craft and Andrew Goldstein, Karen Pukal. That that book really helps people kind of narrow what might be going on. And if you're in a place where you can't find a sex med provider, but you do know that you probably probably have a pelvic floor element, going to the 
APTA.org is really helpful because it links you straight to a directory of pelvic floor PTs. And the Herman Wallace Association is also a great place to look for PTs. So those are some starting points for patients if you're looking for this kind of care. Great. And there's also the Ishwish Find a Provider website, which we'll put in the show notes here. But for anybody who's thinking about starting a female sexual medicine program or hiring someone who's done a fellowship or going into a fellowship, the thing I really want to put out there again is that 43% of women have some sort of issue with their sexual life or their sexual health. And if it's not now, then it might be later. And for many of them, it causes distress. So that is a huge number of people. And the more that we talk about sexual health and the more that we accept women's sexuality, the more need there's going to be. You need more specialists like Dr. Sigma. So thank you so much for starting this fellowship and thank you for training and doing all the work that you do. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You as well. I can't wait to tackle this with you. 